The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Petivan Betkaff, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. This is the chewiest thing I've ever had in my mouth edition. Wait, sorry, you're who? <laughs> I'm Petivan Betkaff. You, that's not how I've known you. What are you talking about? <laughs> Did you get conked in the head? Uh, yes, probably very early on in my uh, developmental stage, but um, this is unrelated. I had superlative Australian house guests this weekend, um, and among the reasons they were the perfect house guests is that their adolescent age sons were the perfect combination of ir- irreverence and um, uh, good-hearted. And they insisted the entire weekend not only on calling me Bativen Betcalf, but insisting that in Australia, this is a sign of high respect. I see. No <laughs> doubt. We have a lot of listeners in Australia. We know this from our great trip there. So if any of you want to speak up and tell us about this uh, Bativen. Yeah, this this important Australian honorific. <laughs> On today's show, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, in which a franchise gets extended into yet another sequel. It has the requisite DNA, but is it you know any good? And then there's now a happily mediocre American rejoinder to the Great British Bake Off. It's called Nailed It, and it's on Netflix. And finally, Scarlett Johansson has been cast to play a trans man. Failed It has been the response to this rumor. We discussed the backlash. We discussed the backlash with Slate's Evan Urquhart. Joining me today is Bajulia Baturner. Slate's editor. Hello. (laughs) This is just never, ever going to get old. Oh. And of course, Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Bello. All right, digging in. Bryce Dallas Howard, a.k.a. Jesse Baker, has returned to the world of Jurassia along with uh, the dinosaur trainer known as Chris Pratt. They must rescue dinosaurs off a volcanic island before they are made DD extinct. Will it shock you to discover they may be dupes in a shadowy scheme to subjugate nature's magnificence to human greed? Let's listen to a clip. Do you remember the first time you saw a dinosaur? First time you see them, it's like a miracle. You read about them in books, you see the bones in museums, but you don't really believe it. They're like myths. And then you see the first one alive. This is not your fault. But it is. This one's on me. I showed him the way. Well, I mean, I think that clip, uh, Dana, conveys how riveting this movie is. What'd you make of this? <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing a lot of irony in that. Um, yeah, that clip is actually one of the most sappy and it had to be in the movie moments in the movie. So I think it kind of gives an unfairly unfun portrait of this movie. I mean, fine. This is what, the fifth Jurassic Park movie? So this world is a much darker and more apocalyptic one, which I think we should get into. And also, obviously, a less fun and fresh and Spielbergian vision than it was when we first digitally reanimated dinosaurs in the early 90s. So if you don't go in with super high expectations and you know that you're just seeing a dinosaur fun ride theme park sort of movie, I thought it was lots of fun, actually. I I really enjoyed it. Is that horribly wrong? I don't know if you mentioned that that Juan Antonio Bayona is the director, who is the guy who made A Monster Calls, the movie that you loved when we talked about it a year or two ago. Remember the the kid pursued by the dream monster? That completely got by me. I mean, good on Hollywood for recognizing that guy's immense talent and giving him the helm here. I'm... I'm a little crestfallen to find that out, though. I mean, he I thought that was among the most underrated movies I've seen in the last 10 years. I thought it was really beautiful and heartfelt and very human underneath a, you know, fairly high concept premise. And uh, well, we'll get to my opinions about this movie. But that I that that got by me. I'm embarrassed to say that it was the same guy. Yeah, I'm surprised that you're surprised to learn that, Steve, because I had the same experience of watching the movie without knowing that it was made by a not cookie cutter blockbuster director. And when I learned that it had been made by a director of uh, originality and talent, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like the dialogue and sort of plot construction of this movie is a little obvious and creaky. And in a way, the entire movie is just a bunch of 
chess piece moving to set up the next movie, which is Rise of the Planet of the Dinosaurs. I mean, basically, <laughs> this second trilogy of dinosaur movies seems to me to be clearly modeled on the success of Rise of the Planet of the Apes and trying to move around to a world where it's you're doing Rise of the Planet of the Apes, telling a story of human extinction in a world that's repopulated by increasingly sentient, genetically modified dinosaurs, which I'm stoked for. I'm like ready for that movie. That sounds great. I'm ready for that world. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to be a little more spoily in my conversation about this movie than I would otherwise, because the I would recommend that you go see it, but your enjoyment of it is not d- dependent, I think, on not knowing what's going to happen because it's incredibly obvious what's going to happen from like the opening minutes of the movie. All kinds of things are creaky and clunky. There are conversations in dino cages, uh, ponderous conversations like the ones we just heard in that clip. Uh, the movie adds a couple of plucky sidekicks uh, of color who thankfully don't die in the manner of plucky sidekicks of color, but are sidekicky the whole time. <laughs> just wisecrack mm-hmm. in the background. They're just, and then there's like this amazing final shot where like the trio of white people at the core of the story, Bryce, Pratt, and uh, this young girl who we'll get to, are like. Um, watching a departing dinosaur and clinging to each other in sort of a family structure pose and then just behind them three or four steps up are like the two plucky sidekicks of color not dead sorry spoiler whatever Uh, and just being like we're here too good luck dinosaur (laughs) like anyway so there's a whole bunch of stuff that just seems kind of rote and um, chess piece movie but then as soon as the movie gets to action I felt like it was an incredibly gripping set of smartly done action set pieces like it's a very Mm -hmm. effectively visually told action story that takes us from an exploding island to a, a kind of military boat setting to this crazy gothic castle in which like a dumbwaiter plays a major plot feature. Like gotta love a movie that centers (laughs) on the mechanics of a dumbwaiter. So great. Um, And oh, and there's like skipping about on, on, uh, you know, uneven roof tiles. Like it visually is super fun. Um, So overall, I really enjoyed it and thought, you know, most a lot of the action blockbuster set pieces we see are confusing and involve the entire galaxy blowing up digitally and I thought the digital dino action here was pretty good. Yeah, the exploding Mm. island sequence that you talked about, which happens pretty early on, the idea is that Isla Nublar, this island that the dinosaur park has been on all this time, is a volcanic island, and nobody thought about that when they decided to build a dinosaur park there. (laughs) And the volcano has gone non-dormant because, of course, there are no geologists who could have predicted any such thing, (laughs) and it starts exploding. But just the, I mean, of course, the idea of outrunning lava is completely absurd. It's like the the game children play, the floor is lava. That basically is what happens in the movie for 15 to 20 minutes. Chris I don't know. Pratt is Some pretending lava is the floor is moving. Lava. I guess so. <laughs> it's like very viscous. There's just some really, really funny scenes of just barely rolling out of the way of huge puddles of lava and then they stop two inches from where Chris Pratt uh. is. But uh, but I agree that that scene is really well staged and once you like buy the silly ridiculousness of it all, it's it's really fun to watch them all escape yeah. the lava. I would say for the first 12 minutes of the movie, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I made Dan and Steve watch this. And then as soon as the action started, I was like, this is great. Can't wait to discuss this. Well, listen, I mean... First of all, shame on me for completely failing the blind taste test. I mean, someone took an expensive or a nice wine or a good wine and stuck it in a cheap bottle and I fell for it and said it was no good. Um, I do think he's a wonderful director. This movie failed to render me non-dormant, I have to admit. I, I, I you know, I, I mean, going back to the original one, Spielberg is is nothing if not an auteur, right? Like a, 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 a absolutely brilliant director. I mean, a wonder... A man who's managed to be a, a, a wunderkind or wunderkind or whatever the word is throughout his entire career. And I didn't like the original Jurassic movie, but I saw Spielberg in a good way all over it. I mean, including it, just his ability to use suspense. I mean, the thing about Jaws is how long he withholds the shark from you to great effect. And similarly with the miraculous, then miraculous CGI of the dinosaurs, you first, long before that, you get thud, thud, thud. And there's just a coffee mug on the dash of that Jeep. And the water is just shaking with each thud. And that's like, that's how well he knows how to, how to make the implied dinosaur exist in your imagination before he gives you the actual uh, thing. 
And it, to me, the villain of this movie is obviously like human greed or however you want to moralize it. But the, but the real villain is CGI that we're, we're just inured to it. There's nothing intrinsically magnificent about these creatures anymore. It presumes that they are. They seem unreal to me in their realness. And CGI, um, you know, I would almost rather have something big, klutzy, and mechanical and believe that it was real in that sense, like actually in the world of 3D, than have this perfectly rendered, you know, superficially, utterly believable thing that so clearly was um, uh, 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 produced on a lap on a laptop. I found it very hard to get swept up uh, swept up in this movie, in part because I, I'm going to now blame it on the script. Now that I know it's a director that I admire who directed it. Um, but it sounds like I'm wrong. I mean, it's made a billion dollars global box office already, and people seem you you two seem to really like it. No, I wouldn't castigate yourself, Steve. I mean, the dialogue is bad. Like most of the dialogue is bad, and all of the moral dilemma at the core. Should we mess with DNA? Have we gone too far? What is the autonomy of the creature? You know, our dinosaurs. Anthropocene. If we create, you know, extinction event. Like, it's all goofy. Let me jump in and say that the screenplay was co-written by Colin Trevorrow, who directed the last Jurassic Park And who's planning to direct the next one and I think has given interviews in which he says that the, the opportunity to direct... Rise of the Planet of the Dinosaurs, that's not his phrase for it, is like what he's most excited about. And and so he's setting up his own future movie. I guess yeah. I guess for a movie like this, and to a certain degree, I tune out the corny dialogue because I'm not expecting great literary insight. Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard are no Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. They just, it's sort of like that couple with 30 to 40 percent of the charm squeezed out they're not terrible i don't i don't mind them but they're they're not really people who can anchor a huge franchise like this with their charisma i found that pairing a little bit lackluster all of the human stuff basically pretty lackluster there's a big exciting reveal about the family behind the dino research that because you care so little about any of these characters is like oh all right yeah yeah that's interesting that sets that up yeah <laughs> and, the, and the human villains are all very predictable it's very scooby-doo where you know that you know the guy who's first extending his hand to shake your hand in the gothic mansion is actually going to be the bad guy yeah he seems so friendly at first poor man's mm. will arnett <laughs> um <laughs> anyway uh but the other thing that i would express mild disappointment about is the lack of extensive wonder at real dinosaur science. There's a lot of like hypothetical dinosaur gene development based off of the pseudoscience of the past movie. And I actually think the the movie that came out a couple years ago did a pretty good job of just showcasing a bunch of species as we understand them now. I think some of the dinosaurs were feathered in ways that they weren't in the original Jurassic Park. There was a bunch of aquatic and aerial creatures. There just was a wider variety of dinosaurs represented. In this movie, there's not a ton of real dinosaurs. There's a great scene with what looked to me like a pachycephalosaurus, although I read in an interview that it's actually a sticky moloch um, that relies on an actual dinosaur trait, as we understand it, to get our heroes out of a sticky situation. But other than that, there's no not a lot of real paleontology there's a lot of bogus paleontology and i was bummed about that anyway look it, I, this is the troubled middle child um uh, of the series and a great director did something interesting with it to big box office so um check it out tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culture fest all right moving on all right well before we go any further this is where we uh, typically discuss business such as it is uh, julia what do we have this week all we have to say this week is that in Slate Plus, we will be talking about the serious kinds of hard-hitting questions you come to us for, showers versus baths. Uh, we will take this question to the mat, to the bath mat, in our <laughs> Plus segment to hear great puns and discussions like that. And to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and a great way to support the work that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. Okay, take two industry insiders, a burbling hostess 
and an inane catchphrase, then place your thumb in the eye of the great British Bake Off, and you have the new Netflix show, Nailed It. Uh, The show's fun, but thanks to a high degree of difficulty in the tasks and somewhat ordinary bakers, it often results in lopsided gunge piles. Uh, But it's fun. Anyway, let's listen to a clip. Let's see what you did, Tony. Nailed it. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but your princess is terrifying. She is so scary looking. And I don't think anybody's coming to rescue her. Oh, no. And then your dragon got decapitated. Yes. But I love this cake so much. The princess is a little bit scary. The eyes. You know, those big eyes. She just wake up. What voice do you think your princess has? <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> you need to kill that dragon off with his head. <laughs> so her voice matches her face. <laughs> if you stare in her eyes, you'll get, you nope. know, you could. <laughs> no, thank you. I won't do it. Okay. Uh, Julia, I guess I'll start with you. I would say that the, over the big course of doing this podcast, the shift in the culture towards premium premium streaming has done as much as anything to prevent us from sounding on a weekly basis like embittered snobs. And why would it, why what I don't know. I lo- I say this from a place of love, but what what Julia, what do you make of the show? Steve, you're like missing the plot on every topic this week. This show yep. is not. Uh, reality show garbage. This show is like a fucking postmodern masterpiece. Like this <laughs> oh, show. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, I mean, one of the things that I will say is that we are out of practice talking about reality TV shows because there is so much streaming narrative drama and comedy that we often choose to sink our teeth into that and I think less frequently go for the reality show sensations of the world and also I think reality shows are just kind of a less dominant mode than they were when we started out uh, 10 years ago but so I so I don't watch a lot of reality I don't watch any reality for pleasure and we haven't watched a ton of reality for this show in a long time we did queer eye recently were you gone when I we was did that? gone when we did queer eye um but it seems clear that everyone making this show is sort of making fun of reality shows at the same time as they're aye, having aye, a really aye. good time making crazy baked goods like everything about it is a gag on the whole concept of the incredibly sober, ponderous, like clanging gong sound reality show production. It's like intentionally low budget, which is probably also convenient because it has a low budget. Um, But there's like all of these conceits and gambits where when they call for uh, the trophy to come out or the doors to open, like... It doesn't work, and they have to call the stagehand again. And they're chewing out the stagehand for not bringing the trophy on time. The the <laughs> uh, like in one of uh, the the winner gets ten thousand dollars, but they've devised uh, a gun that shoots ten thousand dollars at you or whatever. Like it's sort of this uh, cross between a leaf blower and a bill sorter and a and and a gun so that whenever when the winner is announced like just sprays of dollar bills are fanned at them in hilarious fashion uh the whole thing of it is to not take itself seriously in a way that i find refreshing because uh what turns me off about reality tv is that it takes itself so seriously and then the other thing that it doesn't do which i don't know enough to know whether that's become less common but because it's made for Netflix and they're not trying to tease you past the commercial break, they don't do the thing that makes reality television unwatchable where they show you every good bit of tape they got 20 times. You know, they sort of tease before the commercial break that you're going to get so-and-so's breakdown after the commercial break. And then they show you the breakdown. And they've also teased the breakdown in the in, – like, it seems like network reality shows are trying to stretch. Always. They're so padded. That's what I've always hated mm-hmm. about reality mm-hmm. shows. I mean, if you fast right. forward every duplicated scene, you can watch – 40-minute episode of reality drama in, like, 22 minutes. And this show doesn't have those structures and also sort of winks to the fact of it being on Netflix. Like, the bullion host, Nicole Byer, who's sort of, like, loud and hilarious, but 
maybe not super funny, kind of funny, not amazingly funny. <laughs> you know who she reminds me of as a reality host is Chrissy Teigen when she did, did wasn't she the celebrity lip sync challenge She was host? like the sidekick friend. Right. And that. she has a similar quality to Nicole Byer in that they both just are very natural in front of the camera and say whatever they think at every moment. And so that alone makes them funny, even if it's not a great wisecrack. Yeah, there's just a lack of taking it seriously that could you could feel could feel like nihilism, but sort of feels like <laughs> clinging desperately to humanity instead. I I mean, okay, I want to turn to Dana on this, but instruct the witness she's going to be leveled on redirect. But <laughs> Dana, do your worst, Dana. What did you make of this? I mean, I don't have any huge defense to mount. Like, I think once you've watched, I don't. I can't imagine returning to the show again and again to watch it every week. Uh, because I feel like once you've seen three ridiculous pastries collapse while everyone laughs at them, you've kind of seen them all. But like Julia, I appreciate its lightheartedness. I appreciate that it's nice. Whenever my daughter watches a reality show, I wander in and she's discovered some new one. I just ask her that. Is it a nice show? It's not a show that's based on some manufactured villain being bitchy to everyone. And uh, and most of the shows, the reality shows she likes, like The Great Great British Bake Off, which she loves and which the show I think is parodying, are nice. Um, and, and this show has that kind of sweetness of spirit about it. Like everybody knows that the baking is going to be terrible and, uh, and the mockery is sort of taken lightheartedly by the contestants. It's also really unpredictable which cake is going to win because they're all sort of equally awful and hideous. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're not sure whether it's based on, you know, you almost win for the ugliness. Like in that clip that we heard, the the scary princess cake is the one that that takes the prize. Right. Like there's just a baseline of like structural integrity plus edibility that becomes like I was, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, a cool thing is that the total discrepancy between what it looks like and what it tastes like, which is kind of a nice surprise. I mean, Julia, if there's anything I love, it's tropes that were already exhausted with Win Ben Stein's money back in the 90s being forced into life by a shit-eating irony in order to rescue us just by a whisker from nihilism. I mean, I just... I get what you're responding to in the show in the sense that it's self-consciously low budget and therefore has a degree of spontaneity maybe other such shows don't have. Um, You know, I mean, I just found it annoying. I didn't really see the appeal. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a good classic Degustibus case since it's literally about eating things. Although it doesn't seem like it's about eating things because all of the pastries they're trying to make are so over-decorated. They seem basically inedible to start with. I feel like that's my quibble. I wish they had a... I I get that for the production they have one. It seems like all of the things they're supposed to make are the result of one uh, artistic dessert brain because they have a very similar aesthetic. And I found the aesthetic to be mostly repulsive. Yeah, it's true. The original thing they're supposed to be copying is already ugly in most cases. It's like so hideous. You'd never be like, I want to make that. And there's actually one in the very first episode. So th- so we should talk a little bit about the host is Nicole Byer, who is charming in the way that Dana described and also maybe irritating in the way that Stephen has described, depending on your taste. But she's certainly raffish rather than pompous and then Jacques Torres the New York based chocolatier is the um, sort of expert judge who's there every episode and he is clearly having so much fun he it's fun hearing him exercise his like French accent his true expertise and then his generosity of spirit about what the hapless bakers get right and wrong he's just very charming and i found myself watching the show and wondering like how do you get to be jock torres i know 20 years into reality television and then be like you know what i should get a i should get my piece of this action (laughs) and then decide this is the show you're going on like it made me love him so much like i i love that this is the show that he's chosen to do that it's not sort of like uh, inciting faux kitchen drama among serious pastry aspirants. It's like, you know, uh, highlighting the mismatch between home baking and the sort of perfection of Instagram baking oh product. Oh my God, you're breaking down my defenses. <laughs> hard, hard agree on all counts. I mean, Jack Torres essentially makes the show. He's so charming. None of it is forced. He finds the whole thing silly, but he's not an ounce condescending. Yes. I mean, he, 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 it just works 
it works. Uh, also, the tips, the cooking tips he gives are so basic that if you are a very basic home baker like me, you can feel good that you already knew those things. Like he keeps telling people over and over again, do not fill the cake pan too full because then it will rise over the top of the pan. They do it every time. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Just every single one has like an overflowing cake pan. Um, yeah. And then and then his look of grave concern when one contestant just plum forgets to put eggs in the batter. He just looks so stricken. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I I hear you, Steve, that this could just seem grating and it's not actually the notion of a postmodern reality show where no one gives a fuck because the world is ending, but they just try to be nice to each other and cling to like a small hope of humanity and the power of sugar and fat in, in uh, as we huddle around the apocalyptic fire. Like you could either <laughs> see that as uh, delightful or you could be like, who care? I mean, whatever. Even that is just a crass crass commercialism during the end times and it's not exactly fresh to poke mm-hmm. fun at these tropes right. but i found it kind of charming i mean i t- at this point judge all of the shows we watch based on whether i think i would go and watch the rest of the episodes after we finish taping and i should stipulate that i almost never actually go back and watch the episodes to completion because there's just too much to consume at this point but I kind of feel like I want to go watch the other three. It's nice that it's a six-episode season, too. Like, if there were 22 of these, mm-hmm. I'd be like, all right, right enough people go yeah, away. Yeah, it'd be enervating I... from the get-go. I mean, yeah. as between... Right, I get it. Like, I mean, it's just interesting that we're now forced to choose between Anthropocene, Apocalypse, and, like, stop and smell the gum paste fondant flowers, <laughs> you know, on the way to an- Annihilation. But uh, I'll take it. I got to play the embittered snob one last week. All right. Well, Three the apocalypse is this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, news to me. Okay. Stock up on batteries. Uh, all right. It's been nice, guys. Yeah, nailed it. All right. Uh, it's called Nailed It. It's on Netflix. I, we three loved it. And did check it out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Moving on. There are early reports that Scarlett Johansson has been cast to play a trans man in a movie about Dante Tex Gill, a mob-connected brothel owner who insistently identified as a man throughout his life. So writes Evan Urquhart in his Slate piece on the subject. He goes on to write that Johansson, a cisgender woman known for her sexiness, is, to put it mildly, a particularly poor choice for such a role. Joining us now is Evan Urquhart. Evan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm a longtime listener, first-time podcaster. We are so happy to have you on. I'm just so happy to be here. Excellent. We're so happy to have you. I mean, uh, in in particular, because the politics and the significations of the situation are quite complex, and um, uh, we're grateful for you to come on and help us work through them. Uh, what was your reaction when you first heard this news? And um, what do you conclude about what the right thing to do might be here? So I was pretty angry, um, not because it's Scarlett Johansson playing a trans man, but because this is just something that the transgender community has been raising for years. Um, and it just feels like like no one's listening and they're not getting it. Um, so I wrote my piece for Slate suggesting that if um, transgender actors can't be found for these roles, you know, at the very least, they could find cisgender actors of the same gender as the characters they are playing. Um, and I suggested Robert Downey Jr. as a great uh, choice to play, you know, Dante Tex Gill. When they cast a cisgender woman to play a trans man, when she goes out and does press, when she's, you know, known as um, as a woman and known as a sexy woman, it really undermines the idea that trans men are men. Right. And the flip side is this a, a statement is that a trans man is essentially still a woman. A- exactly. And, you know, that's exactly what, you know, we as trans people have been trying to trying to counteract. We're not fake. We're not... I'm not really a woman who is pretending to be a man. And every time a cisgender actress, even if she does an amazing job, plays a trans man, it's reinforcing that idea that trans men are really women. What I liked about your piece, Evan, among many other things, was that you acknowledged quite openly that Hollywood is uh, responding on a constant basis to commercial pressures, one of the largest of which is to have movies carried by big-name stars. Um, I think you're quite generous about that, but nonetheless, as much as we love Scarlett Johansson, we love Hollywood movies, this is a fuck-up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that 
the transgender community is often seen as if we'll just object to anything, um, as if we're just always outraged. And, you know, to some extent, people are really angry and do get really upset. But I think we need to make a distinction between a big thing like having a woman playing a man and a smaller thing like having a big name cisgender man playing a man. That would be like, you know, that would be like a two on the outrage scale, whereas Scarlett Johansson is like definitely a 10. Yeah, I mean, I liked the way in which I think your argument moves the conversation forward by acknowledging some of the economic realities of production. I I confess to being very glad we're talking about this today because I find every argument I read about representation on film persuasive, even arguments that are directly opposed to one another. And, And I'd love to broaden it out from trans representation specifically, although I think we can circle back to it, but to overall uh representation you know of across ethnicity and race and other questions because i think increasingly there are a set of people in journalism and media among activists who say uh you should only hire a person of the exact ethnicity or race or sexuality or gender identity or experience to play a role based on such an identity and uh there are a couple really great reasons for those arguments. One, Hollywood has for a long time relied way too exclusively on only white actors, had white actors play famous black roles, famous Native American roles, not famous roles, you know, just like let white people play every role. And just to jump in and say Scarlett Johansson herself has done that very recently in Ghost in the Shell with the same director who's proposing this project. So she also has a history with that. that right. Problem. This is particularly loaded and fraught because of that. Um you know, one potential way to get Hollywood to stop just casting white people for every available role uh, and and to get them to short circuit or cut through the circular argument of like, well, we can't possibly cast any trans people. There are no trans movie stars without acknowledging that, of course, if they actually cast trans people, they might then create trans movie stars who would help like solve that problem. Um you know, constant pressure for more accurate representation of all kinds in film roles seems like it is a force for good because it forces Hollywood to do uh, a broader set of searching for talent in its casting. And the broader it searches for talent, the more likely it is to find great actors of all stripes and make the work that we see more excellent because a broader talent pool is being pulled upon in order to make it. It also seems like it would have powerful impacts for people of all different types watching stuff who for whom it is meaningful to see, you know, an actual Latino actress play a Latino role. Um, so hearing all that, I find that stuff persuasive and uh, valuable. I also feel like when I read the set of counter arguments that say, wait, this is like a ton of rule setting about who gets to make what creatively what kinds of representations and art can be created. There's something that feels fundamentally deeply conservative about that set of impulses and that set of kind of rules and policing around how art is made. And, uh, you know, I, there are there are examples that seem obvious, like letting people play whatever role is how you end up with Yellowface and Mickey Rooney and uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's and uh, just all kinds of terrible grotesque things in the history of cinema that you wish had never been done. On the other hand, where exactly do you draw the line? Like Samuel L. Jackson called out uh, the casting of British black actors to play black Americans in the case of Selma with David Oyelowo and Get Out with Daniel Kaluuya and said, oh, it would have been interesting to see what a black American actor would have brought to those roles that are so fundamentally about black Americans and the black American experience and was widely called out by a bunch of people for being like, you idiot clown, what a stupid argument. That's not the fight we need to be having. But, you know, why isn't that a reasonable point to raise if some of these other ones are? So, uh, help. <laughs> help me. Yeah. So I was I was just a kid when Boys Don't Cry came out um, and I didn't see it. It was an R-rated movie. Um, but I did see Hillary Swank doing press for it and I did see her win the Oscar for it. And, you know, as a 
young transgender man who was not out and didn't even really kind of understand the variety of what being trans could look at like the idea that I got in my head was that, you know, if you want to successfully pass as a woman, you're going to have to be an actress. You're going to have to be very skinny. It even then it's just going to be fake. People are never going to take you seriously. Like these are the, the subconscious messages that the audiences are getting every time one of these cross gender roles is cast. So, you know, I think there's there's a cultural give and take with who makes what. I think it's very important to have trans people consulting on these roles if they're not the actor, if they're not the writer or the director. I think it's very important to have trans people in minor roles or to have, you know, a trans star and a big name uh, a trans, you know, star and a big name actor, you know, as a supporting cast. Like there are lots of different ways I think that the that the sausage can be made and I do think that there's a point where it can be, you know, like too dogmatic where it's like, you know, there's these purity tests and nothing's going to get made at all if, you know, if we require 100% purity. But I also think that there are ways to be better. There are ways to try harder. And I think Hollywood sometimes feels like, you know, like they are doing this great work of bringing transgender acceptance to trans people against the transgender community who is just messing it up by with all our demands. And like, I don't think people are really listening to like, why this is a problem and trying to think through like, well, how could this be better than it otherwise would, even if it's not going to be perfect, even if some of the demands seem like they might be, you know, a little too much purity. Yeah, Evan, that makes me think of a couple of, of things, just very strong reactions I had about reading the specific press about about this controversy, about whether Scarlett Johansson should play this character, in which my jaw kind of dropped, realizing how far behind the times just the discourse of the industry is. Like the fact that all of the trades, apparently, the industry trade papers reporting this story about the proposed Scarlett Johansson project seem to misunderstand the gender of the person that we were talking about in the first place, Dante Tex Gill, and whether this was a trans person or, as you say, just a woman pretending to be a man, that the language was very sloppy about that and in different ways in different publications, which also makes it seem that the press releases or whatever was prepared and announced about the movie was probably confused as well. Then the have we talked about the response of Scarlett Johansson's rep to um to, to press queries? If anybody has that handy, let's read it out loud. It was really sort of shocking that this was Crass, yeah. this was what they came up with. Um, yeah, apparently Johansson gave a statement to Bustle via a representative, quote, tell them that they can be directed to Jeffrey Tambor, Jared Leto, and Felicity Huffman's reps for comment. All three of those actors won accolades for playing trans roles uh, in recent years, but also those are roles that have come under increasing scrutiny with increasing recentness and and her statement doesn't acknowledge the critiques or the fact that Tambor himself accepting, I think, an Emmy for his role uh, said that he hopes he's the last cis man to play a trans woman. Um, so it was a cl very deeply clueless statement on her team's part. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they had not prepared something better than that, especially after the Ghost in the Shell controversy happening with the same director so recently, it was just just strange that there hadn't even been a sit down to discuss how to, to present that. So I guess those things really shocked me. And then so did the statistic that came up somewhere in our research, which is that, which if you think about it, makes a certain amount of sense, but that 84% of Americans have never met a trans person, right? Or are not aware if they have, that they have no personal contact in their life with a trans person, which is not necessarily bad on those people, right? It's a small segment of the population. There are many parts of the country where people might not be out about it. Um, but the fact that that is such a vast segment of the population that has no personal familiarity with this, you know, whole class of people makes it seem that this is really important to think about going forward. You know, that it that it's not OK to just kind of coast over it and say, oh, well, we'll patch up the hole somehow. And here you go. Here's a dismissive statement from my reps. It just seems like this needs to be taken seriously in order to open up some space there for, you know, people who are just so invisible to much of the population. Yeah. I mean, Dana, I had that set of responses as well. And I think that, um, you know, is, is part of why this issue may be deeply important to think about in the question of trans casting as opposed to some of the broader casting questions that I raised. But, um, you know, I also think one thing that's tricky here is it can sometimes be confusing if you're not well versed in uh, how to appropriately think about trans issues, the notion that 
everyone should only use the true transgender of the trans person at all times because the human experience of being trans includes being born with one physical presentation that does not align with what one's gender identity is and then making a set of decisions about how to handle that kind of medically, socially, uh, you know, and, and how to adjust one's presentation to match one's true identity versus the body one was born with. Evan, correct me if I haven't said that in the right way, but that experience of transition seems like it's part of being trans and that there is some set of rhetoric around how to talk about trans people that asks journalists and the world broadly to only acknowledge the true and final and resulting identity presentation. But if movies are about the human experience, that experience of not having been born with the body that matches the gender identity that you have internally seems like a potential subject for film and for art and for exploration. Um, And so there is a way in which the view that is kind of considered correct in how to talk about and treat trans people sometimes seems at odds with art and to me also journalism, like the, the notion of you should never acknowledge that a trans person was is trans or was born with a different, you know, there's there's different arguments about that. But I think that a, a trans man did at one point have a woman's body and a movie that was focusing on that experience or the beginnings of it or the discovery that, that the a person might be played with someone who also has a woman's body. It, I don't think it's always clear why that should be off limits. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that you know, I can think of a couple of points. Um, I think one of them is, again, getting back to that subconscious idea that trans people are faking being something they're not. And so this is the thing that gets trans women, you know, trans women murdered. This get this is what gets, you know, when people find out someone is trans, like really puts our, our jobs at risk, it puts our housing at risk, it puts our relationships at risk, it puts our lives at risk. And so anything that is going to reinforce this idea that I was once a woman, and now I am a man, you know, it, it undermines me as like a, a safe, honest person in society. And so I think that's why the trans community really does you know, feel very strongly that the language and the way of thinking about trans people is we are our authentic selves now and we always were and we may have looked like something different. You know, we may have used a different name. We may have had people spontaneously use different pronouns at the time, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that we changed or that we're tricking people or that we are trying to be something we're not. Um, And then the other thought that that brought out is that telling the story of Dante Tex Gill is such an amazing opportunity to tell the story of a trans person that isn't focusing around uh, transition. Here is a man who was a brothel owner, who feuded with the mob, who went to jail. All of these things make an amazing story that doesn't have to be centered only around transition. And I feel like it's such a great opportunity to get beyond just telling that transition narrative that we see over and over again. And it's really disappointing to have the casting be so, so wrong for this role, because to me, it felt like a real missed opportunity. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Like the the one thing that's been really heartening in a lot of the moves toward better representation in Hollywood over the last few years, which have mostly happened uh, in areas of race, I think, that are not fundamentally about race. It's not It's not like every movie is a, this look who's coming to dinner and it's right. fundamentally the about... The job of the black actor is to be black. Yeah, or about like the, the quote-unquote difference of the person who it's surprising to see on screen because mostly we just see white people on screen. I mean, I, I your argument about um, honesty and presentation, I think, is really interesting, Evan, because I do feel like... To me, what seems like it would be the best eventual future scenario would be for there to be no fear, violence, shame, or stigma attached to being trans. But it's not clear to me that the path to getting there is to insist that people who don't understand all agree to ignore whatever the journey was that resulted in the ultimate 
public presentation of the true identity. I sometimes wonder about that approach. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, trans people didn't choose to have our authenticity or supposed lack thereof to be at the center of bigotry towards us. You know, that wasn't something that the trans community got together and, and decided. That was something that came from the world, came from, you know, the cisgender world. So, you know, we can only fight that the best we can. And I think, you know, if Felicity Huffman had been, you know, the start of a wave of only casting um, cisgender women to play trans women in 2005, and if only cisgender men had played trans men, you know, for the past, you know, more than 10 years, I do think we would have a different kind of subconscious reaction to a transition story where it's like, oh, the, the true person is being revealed, the person is able to be more authentic, instead of being back where I feel like we've always been with this issue, which is, some amount of belief that we're hiding ourselves or, or tricking people. You know, that's not coming from us. I, I completely agree. It would be nice if that was just completely removed from the picture. But we do have to deal with a world where fakeness and falseness and us as kind of tricking people is sort of the dominant narrative. And we're just trying to challenge that however we can. Evan has very kindly indulged me asking lots of questions that I hope it's clear, Evan, come from a place of curiosity and, and not argument. Oh, of course. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful argument, Evan. And I didn't know when I mentioned Felicity Huffman, you know, that was a that was a lauded performance by a woman playing a trans woman, which is the course you're recommending here uh, for this film. Um, and certainly is, is one that suggests that this is a route that Hollywood could pursue alongside trying to identify, find, and elevate more trans actors into trans stars who could also play some of these roles. All right. Well, the piece is Why Scarlett Johansson Playing a Trans Man is Not Only Offensive But Unnecessary by Evan Burkhart. Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really a terrific segment. Thank you. Uh, it was so much fun. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, given the fact that the world is dissolving before our eyes right now at an even faster rate than it has been for the last year and a half. I'm I'm just going to endorse some soothing sucker. I think you and I were talking about this before we started rolling, which is that I can only tolerate social media anymore if there's a cute animal every t five or 10 minutes appearing in my Instagram and or Twitter. E feed. Yes. And just the, just the clear things up that sucker with two C's. <laughs> it could go both ways. Um, oh, okay. So so I want to endorse a couple of great animal Twitter feeds and one Instagram feed for people to add if they also need some eye soothing. And to me personally, the best soothing comes from either wild or farm animals. I also follow just a, a couple of plain old cute pet feeds, but sometimes they can get a little too cutesy. But um, But something about looking at farm animals in the not quite wild, but in the domesticated spaces where they exist is just really soothing to the eye, especially sheep for me in particular. What is more relaxing than just looking at a nice white fluffy sheep? Um, so I'm going to endorse one sort of absolutely essential sheep Twitter <laughs> feed that I think I've already talked about before because I think I've endorsed this guy's book. There's Herdy Shepherd One. We're going to give links to all these on our show page, who is a guy named James Rebanks who lives in England. I believe he lives in the uh, the lake country, somewhere incredibly beautiful. And he herds sheep and, uh, and it's a fantastic. He's a wonderful writer. He's a great photographer. He has beautiful sheep. And uh, and if you want to read his book, uh, Shepherd's Life, it's also a great book. So that's essential, Herdy Shepherd one. There's also one I discovered through him called Yorkshire Shepherdess. That's as lovely as that sounds. Another English woman herding around her, her pastoral herds. And uh, what else? There's a llama. <laughs> There's a llama farm somewhere. I don't remember the name of that one, but we'll put it on the list as well. That ju They just had baby llamas, so you can watch those baby llamas grow up day by day. And then our producer, Benjamin Frisch, just told me that Kinderhook Farm, Steve, the farm near you that we visited when you were up there for The oh Secret God, Show. Absolutely. They have an Instagram feed, which I didn't know. So starting today, I will follow them as well and have some sheep in my Instagram eyeballs. So yeah, farm social media, Twitter and Instagram, and I will try to collect a good roundup of, um, of people to follow and put them on the show page. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, here, here. Kinderhook is wonderful on social media and a total balm to the soul. Um, and they, by the way, are uh, complete believers in the she shepherd uh, superstar from Britain, James Rebank, is it? James Rebanks, yeah, he's the best. Yeah, they they 
they think he's the the real thing, and if they do, then um, I actually then think I Steve, that you should you're, read you should read a Shepherd's Life. You specifically, I think you would really love it. I mean, it has some of your questions about country mouse versus city mouse and what it is to to live in the country. Mm-hmm. That's a great. Yeah, no, I'm super eager to read that actually, and um, thank you for um, reminding me. I'm going to do it this summer then. Um, Julia, what do you have? I have two endorsements this week. One is very Kvelly because I just can't resist Kvelling. So uh, two weekends ago, I got to go wedding dress shopping with my mom and sister because my sister's getting married later this year and I couldn't be more excited and happy. Um, And I'm recommending the experience of wedding dress shopping, which I, I've maybe now that I love reality shows, I should watch Say Yes to the Dress and enjoy the that drama and narrative. But we did this whole blitz, went to five different small businesses in New York on the same Saturday. My tireless sister tried on 10,000 things. Uh, and it was such a fun portrait of like design and art and capitalism and business and industry. Like it was just so interesting what these businesses were, how they operated, what the manners and mores are, what this teeny little sector of the economy is. Like it was just fascinating and i really enjoyed it did you enjoy it more than shopping for your own wedding dress uh yeah i think so or like i wasn't able to see the broader um, right yeah the pressure's on when it's you right you can't step outside Yeah, it was just more we met all of these interesting enterprising people running these little businesses all with their own little niche and idea of how to do it and how to do it better and what their little competitive advantage was and what the design was and how to sell you this magic vision of your you know I mean the whole pageantry of a wedding is just demented and crazy anyway like the whole thing is nuts uh and yet there were all of these really talented interesting smart uh entirely female people running these little shops and businesses and uh it was just a really interesting day of kick-ass women running shit uh, in really smart, interesting, different, diverse ways. So uh, wedding dress shopping and the female-powered bridal industry is one rec- one recommendation. Wedding dress shopping for someone else. <laughs> um, and then my second recommendation, which is actually useful to you if you do not have a sister getting married, uh, is uh, a book called This Could Hurt by Jillian Medoff. I will confess, I'm pretty sure this has been endorsed by many other Slate podcasters. I'm pretty sure both Plots and Hannah Rosen mentioned it on their shows and that also maybe Noreen Malone read it and loved it. So if you don't listen to those shows or you never followed up their advice from six months ago, I'm here to tell you that This Could Hurt by Jillian Medoff is a great novel and a great beach read. It has an unlikely plot summary for that recommendation, which is that it's about the travails of a senior manager of an HR team at a small and struggling company that does something clearly useless in the global economy and the relationships uh, she has with the people above her and below her and their relationships with each other. It is sort of um, the two other cultural products that come most to mind are very different. Uh, The Office and Mad Men. The Office because it's about a company that fundamentally doesn't matter and can't really believe itself to matter that much. But Mad Men, because despite those circumstances, all of the people in it, their work is a big part of their emotional life and they take it very seriously and their relationships with each other are interesting and fascinating and fraught and full of dynamics that occupy their emotional intelligence and space for the bulk of their days. Uh, And it takes the emotions of being a professional seriously in a really novel and excellent way. And it's just super readable and great. So This Could Hurt by Jillian Medoff. All right. Well, I'm going to um, I'm gonna do the inobvious thing and um, endorse the totally obvious thing. Uh, Humphrey Bogart. I, you may have heard of him. A big film actor. I hear that guy's going places. <laughs> you know, the thing, the thing about Many Bogart. Many people are saying. The thing about Bogart is uh, like very few things in life. He's as great as his the mythology surrounding him would suggest. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't say that maybe he's my favorite of that era uh, of film actors. Slightly before him is William Powell, who probably um, takes that cake. But but the more you learn about Bogart, the more you like him. I read a huge plinth of a biography of him by Ann Sperber about five or six years ago, um, called I think just Bogart. 
I think it's the definitive one, but it's it's he just lived a remarkable life. He was this sort of declassed, self-declassed or half self-declassed gentleman, Andover, you know, booted out of Andover or left it prematurely. I can't remember which, but sort of headed out to Hollywood and was always a little too good for Hollywood. Um, not in a he didn't have a snobs relationship to Hollywood, but a depressive maybe or an agonized depressive's relationship to having become an actor. Um, and he stumbled into it completely. I mean, he stumbled into stardom and superstardom kind of accidentally. He was an odd looking, half lisping sort of, he was an oddity really. And an oddity is not only a film star, but arguably the greatest film icon of all, American film icon, male film icon of all time. Um, and that whole story is remarkable. But, it comes, my admiration for Bogart comes up against an absolutely immovable force, which is the one rule in life that I feel like it's like the fucking categorical imperative. You cannot break this rule. Do you have any any idea what that rule is, Dana? No, <laughs> nor did I know what the secret location was until you told us. How could I possibly right, well, guess? But that rule is you must never, ever see the movie before you read the book. And what that has meant up until roughly now is that I can't see what many people regard as the greatest movie that Bogart ever made, which Dana Stevens is, Redeem Yourself. In a Lonely Place. Yes, which, true. Directed by Nicholas Ray, which is, I think, probably in my top five movies in the world, if I had to pick. I absolutely love. In fact, when we did our, our LA Live show and we each chose a, a a piece of a movie to show, I can't remember why. Was it because it was our favorite Hollywood movie? We were doing movies that... The sort of Los Angeles movies. Los Angeles movies, right. I think that was that was the one that I chose to show a clip from. But anyway, go on, In a Lonely Place. Well, anyway, so um, it's based on a novel that's um, uh, an oddity itself a little bit in that it's, it's classic uh, pulp fiction, but written by a woman, Dorothy B. Hughes. So I'm finally reading In a Lonely Place, and Megan Abbott has a wonderful afterword to it, and she says, reading Dorothy B. Hughes's novel In a Lonely Place for the first time is like finding the long-lost final piece to an enormous puzzle. Within its Spanish bungalows, its eucalyptus-scented shadows, you feel as though you've discovered a delicious and dark secret, a tantalizing page-turner with sneakily sub subversive undercurrents. And, you know, the great pulp novels, you know, Hammett and uh, Jim Thompson and various others, there is this kind of calm surface beneath which lies an implied psychosis, and they're, they're, they're vaguely nauseating to read in this way. And um, this one seems to be a, a story, I mean, I'm 30, 40, 50 pages into it, and I'm completely fucking riveted to it, and it just has the aura of, um, you know, of countering the myth of post-war self-fulfillment. There's there's a, a feeling of, of, of maladjustment, of like deep broken maladjustment to it and as written by a woman i think that there's something fascinating about that and i'm working it out as i go but i will report back when i'm done but it is by far the cultural item that i'm um engaging with most deeply this week so i thought i'd throw it in there even though i'm in medias race and then very quickly you know springsteen over the course of his career went from uh verbosity to bombast and um People forget the verbose phase, and for some reason, I've just re-listened to his first album, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. It's not a totally unfamiliar record by any means. I'm mean, certainly in the pantheon if you're inclined to like Springsteen, but there's one song on particular uh, on the album in particular. It was always my favorite Springsteen song when I was a, a little one, and that was um, the song For You, which is crammed, filled with imagery and language kaleidoscopic language of the sort that he was told to pare back on the way to making himself into a, a an American myth. Um, but it's sort of wonderful. It seems to be, unlike maybe some of the songs from that phase of his career, about something and about something that's urgent to him, you know, about two people tormenting each other in a romantic relationship. And when one is there for the other, the other one becomes aloof. And, um, and it's the singer overcoming that that horrible dialectic to just say like I'm here for you like I've I'm you know forget it I don't fucking care about the history tormented history of this relationship even though I've just regurgitated it at length um, and the chorus kind of transcends that aspect of the relationship it's a great song I mean it just because we have him so fixed in our head as this you know action figure from the mid 80s um, who was wonderful in his own way we've forgotten 
what sort of an artist he was at first. So I love that song. I'm curious whether it's anyone else's favorite Springsteen song. And if you don't know it, seek it out. I know that whole album. Yeah, I love Asbury Park, New Jersey. I have like such a great memory of buying that on vinyl when I was 16, when it was still sort of exciting, like to have my own record. And uh, oh I, I agree God. that it's it feels like lost Springsteen, right? I mean, he's baby Dylan for one thing. Yeah. That thing, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah, the perennially lost Springsteen. I'm so glad that you love that phase of his career. Yeah, Blinded by the Light, his version of that song, which I only knew from the pop cover of it, right? But his his version of it is fantastic. Yeah, and the funny thing is, you know who was a huge fan of that phase? Bowie. Bowie covers two songs from that album right away because he thinks this is something really new and brilliant. Um, oh, well, I never does this. this. Yeah, does this bus stop at 80, uh, whatever it is, Something Street and, and um, Hard to Be a Saint in the City? I mean, those songs are just so great. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Julia, thanks. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. We don't have an intern, but we have our perennial... Uh, and genius producer. His name is Benjamin Frisch. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon.